0: Good morning, everyone. Our next case is State of North Carolina versus DuPont et al. And we will hear from the appellant.
1: May it please the court, your honors, Joshua Ackerman here with my colleagues, Robert Marcus and Bailey King on behalf of appellants, DuPont de Nemours Inc, which I'll call New DuPont today than Corteva, Inc. I'd like to reserve 10 minutes of my time for rebuttal. Your Honors, this case requires you to decide whether the state has jurisdiction over my clients, Corteva and New DuPont, which are two Delaware-holding companies that have never done business here, have no operations here, don't sell, sell any products into this state, and do not use the compounds that are at issue in this case. I wanna start with the state's imputation theory first. The state argues that North Carolina has jurisdiction over my clients because they inherited the contacts of another company, E.I. DuPont din Company, which I'll call Historical DuPont, through a series of transactions that Historical DuPont engaged in to reorganize its business. Now, the parties agree that the core inquiry in this case is whether my clients, New DuPont and Corteva, should reasonably anticipate that they would be hailed into jurisdiction in the state. That's on pages uh, 33 and 34 of the state's brief. The parties also agree that the action that uh, is at issue here is what I'll call the Dow DuPont separation transaction. And to put a little more context around that, I wanna take a step back and just briefly explain the two transactions that are at issue in the case. The first transaction was back in 2015. And in that transaction, Historical DuPont spun off its performance chemicals business into a separate publicly traded company called Comors. Comors still exists today, still publicly traded. It's also a defendant in this case, and Comores is not contesting jurisdiction. At that point, later in 2015, what remained of Historical DuPont merged with the Dow Chemical Company and created a combined entity called Dow DuPont. Four years after that, 2019, we have the transaction that's at the core of of our argument today, which separated the combined Dow DuPont entity into three separate companies. One of those is Corteva, the second one is New DuPont, and there's a third that's not relevant to this case that we'll call New Dow. Now the question is, what about that transaction which was negotiated in Delaware, between Delaware companies, and f- affected the entire corpus of the combined Dow and DuPont businesses, would have caused Cortevin and DuPont to, to reasonably believe that they'd be sur- subject to jurisdiction in North Carolina. Uh, and the state's argument is that if there was any assumption at all of any liabilities from historical DuPont, that's enough. Our view is that that is constitutionally deficient under the Burger King case. And if you think about these issues on a spectrum, on the one hand, you have situations where there's a merger between two companies or a successor company is truly the full embodiment of of a prior company. It's taken on all the businesses, you might have continuity of management, you might have the same headquarters, same ownership. That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we have what we know from the law of the state which is that a corporation that purchases all or substantially all of the assets of another corporation is generally not liable for that corporation's debts and therefore would not, you know, for relevant for this case, inherit their jurisdictional contacts. And that's from the, the Bud Tyre case that, that's cited in the briefs. Here we have something in the middle. We have a situation where the Dow DuPont entity split into three companies and those companies took assets Corresponding to the businesses that they would carry on. And our view under, is under Burger King, like any other contract, what a court needs to do to determine whether it has jurisdiction is to scrutinize that, that arrangement to see whether the parties would reasonably anticipate being held in the court. And in Burger King, the Supreme Court of the United States, said among the factors that you look at to make that determination are the prior negotiations, the contemplated future consequences of the transaction. Terms of the contract and the party's actual course of dealing. That's on page 479 of that opinion. Here, you know, the state would, would dispense with all of that and they would treat a simple assumption of any any of historical DuPont's liabilities as sufficient.
0: In, in your view, does uh, the allegation that Chamor's uh, was um, not fully capitalized or not capitalized to the extent that uh, it could uh, cover its potential liability. Is that a factor at all that should be considered?
1: Well, first of all, Your Honor,
0: we would dispute that notion. I mean, oh, well, but we take the complaint, right? I mean, it, well, not don't we look at this based on allegations of the complaint unless, uh, I think Judge Robinson said they were specifically uh, contradicted. Uh,
1: well, we had jurisdictional discovery in this case, Your Honor. Below. <coughs> I don't believe that the state has put forward any evidence that Comores is insolvent. But even setting that aside for a moment, Comores is one defendant in this case. Historical DuPont is also a defendant in this case. It also remains a going concern and is well capitalized. So, you know, to take a step back, Comores and the state of its solvency has no bearing on what Corteva and New DuPont would have reasonably expected at the time that they entered into the transaction that Comors had nothing to do with. Comores was not a party to the Dow DuPont transaction, which is the source of the alleged jurisdiction in this case.
0: So in your view, uh, can the successor entities or the process of becoming successor entities, can they turn a blind eye to potential liabilities?
1: No, Your Honor. I, you know, our view is not that, uh, our clients turned a blind eye to any potential liabilities. The question is, what, what did they reasonably expect that they were taking on?
0: Well, guess- let's, let's, let's back up a little bit before that. Uh, uh, shouldn't it be that whatever assets were available before the uh, various corporate actions, shouldn't those assets also be available now to any potential claimant?
1: And they are, Your Honor. The assets that corresponded to the business that creates the alleged jurisdictional contacts in this case, the assets corresponding to the Fayetteville Works Facility, all of those assets went to Comores.
0: So so not just Fayetteville and those, but by all the assets, you mean all the assets of uh, what would would have been old DuPont.
1: Well, Your Honor, not all of the old DuPont assets went to Comores. You know, it was a division of the business. Certain of those assets remain with historic DuPont today, which, again, is is in the case. Others of them were, you know, along with some of the commingled Dow assets, were distributed to the three companies as part of the Dow-Dupont transaction. Well,
2: to to, to maybe ask what I understood to be the Chief Justice's question a different way, is it your argument, then, that the all of the assets that would have been available to satisfy claims made against old DuPont prior to the crema- creation of, uh, Shemours and prior to these other transactions are still available to claimants against what would have been old DuPont if none of this had ever happened?
1: Well, so Your Honor, in the context of these transactions, which were, you know, large transactions that dealt with many businesses, I don't think, literally, every single asset that once belonged to a historical I,
2: I think the allegation by the plaintiffs is that there's been a substantial diminution in the amount that's available. I think that's, that's my words and not theirs, but I think that's the gist of what they're saying.
1: And, and I don't, you know, Your Honor, the plaintiffs have certainly have not established that, you know, they've conducted jurisdictional discovery, they've not shown that.
2: Have, have, have you adduced evidence to the contrary, other than a denial?
1: Uh, I don't believe we have in the record here, but certainly, Your Honors, could take public notice of, for instance, the market capitalization of Comores or-
2: Did-did Judge Robinson, I mean, my understanding was Judge Robinson found, in essence, that there had been a transfer of assets away from these two uh, entities you have not challenged. I don't think any of his factual statements is lacking in sufficient evidentiary support. I don't think. If that's wrong, please tell me.
1: Well. Your Honor, I I don't believe, I think, as to this particular point, um, you know, whether the plaintiff in below, in the business court, had requested that uh, the parties conduct discovery on exactly this issue about whether assets were shielded. And that's on page 273 and 74 of the record. It's it's one of the parties' discovery reports. And they didn't actually end up doing that. Um, I'm I'm sorry, what? So the plaintiff requested below in the business court to to conduct discovery on exactly this issue about whether these transactions were, uh, you know, to quote, shield billions of dollars um, of assets from potential liability. And they didn't engage in any discovery along those lines. The discovery that the parties conducted below were related to the nature of the Dow DuPont transaction. So, you know, our, our view is certainly that The plaintiff has not established that Comores or historical DuPont, which are are both in this case and not contesting jurisdiction, don't have the assets to to pay the judgment. But, But again, even setting that aside for a minute, the question again has to go back to under Burger King, what were the actions that Corteva or New DuPont took that would make them amenable to jurisdiction in the state? We know from the Supreme Court's precedent that the actions of another party cannot create jurisdiction over Cortez Avenue-Dupont. So, you know, whether it you know, did something that caused itself to become insolvent, which it hasn't, well, even if that were true, that wouldn't create jurisdiction over our court. Well, I
2: mean, but it's just as a question of fact. I mean, look at finding a fact number 25 in the trial court's order, and I just found that by looking. It says, quote, Old DuPont has engaged in a multi-stage process. To restructure its business that could place DuPont, old DuPont, in a position where it's unable to pay billions of dollars of liabilities related to PFAS contamination, including liabilities arising out of the operation of Fayetteville Works." Close quote. I didn't see anything in your brief in which you challenged the sufficiency of the evidentiary support for that finding. Did I miss
1: something? Uh, I I don't have a citation in front of you, Your Honor, but I would say this. That, can, can, that,
2: can, can, I, I hate to do this, but can you answer my question, yes
1: or no, and then explain however you'd like? We, I I am not aware of anything in this record where we specifically dispute that fact. Okay. Our view is it's not relevant to what's in front of the Okay, Okay. Right. And, and the reason for that is, you know, this, to take the example that Your Honor just gave me here about what old DuPont did, that's not an action of Corteva or new DuPont. And so, you know, these, these decisions that a different defendant has made can't create jurisdiction over our clients. The, the other thing I would point out is, you know, certainly these transactions were, you know, not insider transactions or, uh, you know, a closely held corporation. These are large publicly held companies. All these cons- transactions were for valid consideration between shareholders. You know, so I, I think even from what's... Publicly available that casts a lot of doubt on this this notion that uh, these transactions were somehow Designed to, to shelter assets in that way
3: Excuse me counselor. I would like to follow up on uh, Justice Irvin's question also in uh, Finding of fact 33 there's the fact that says the value of old upon has continued to decrease and at one point declined. um uh, to a net worth of a $1.125 and before that, in 33, uh, it says that Old DuPont transferred valuable assets and business lines to New DuPont and Cortiva for less than, fair, uh, less than the assets value. Are, are you arguing that these companies were not aware of the value of assets they were receiving and, and the nature of the transaction in which they were involved?
1: No, your honor. I'm not arguing that our clients weren't aware of, of the nature of the assets they were receiving or these transactions. I mean, these are you know, large transactions that are undertaken with thorough analysis. I, you know, I think that this is, in 33, a very incomplete picture of these transactions in the sense that, of course, if you have a company like Historic DuPont that spins off one of its businesses, in some sense, you know, some of the assets go with the business. But they receive consideration for that. Uh, you know, there was a fairness opinion certainly done in connection with the Camores transaction. And, and so the result is, you know, here they're focused narrowly on historical DuPont, but there are two defendants. It's not just historical DuPont. You also have to consider the Corteva side of the equation and all the assets that they, Corteva, received that were, or, pardon me. You also have to consider the assets that Camor's in that first transaction, not to confuse it with Corteva. You have to take into account both the Camor's assets and the historical DuPont assets because that would have been the corpus of, of what was residing within historical DuPont prior to 2015.
3: Uh, and as a follow-up, uh, Comores would have been aware of those prior transactions. Am I correct in that in that thought?
1: I, I think you mean Corteva, Your Honor, because Comores was 2015 yes. and 2019 was Corteva. It, yes, Corteva was aware of those prior transactions, but... That actually supports our position, because you have to look at what did Corteva reasonably expect? And what Corteva reasonably expected is this other company, Comores, took this business. They took on these liabilities. They have an arrangement with historical DuPont to handle them between themselves. And so at the point when Corteva was receiving assets from the combined Dow DuPont company, those earlier businesses were gone. And if you look at, in the briefs, we have the Hanna, the state of Idaho versus M.A. Hanna case and the Centerpoint Energy case. And both of those involve analogous situations where the assets that correspond to the jurisdictional um, contacts were gone from the predecessor company before the moment that the successor companies allegedly took on the jurisdictional contacts. And those cases talk about how, in that context, the expectation of the successor company needs to be informed by the fact that those assets had previously been divested from the predecessor.
3: And one follow-up. You mentioned that the organization was aware that there was an agreement between the prior organizations to decide who would be liable. Are you arguing that um, two parties could then decide that they would not be liable to a third party? I'm I'm a little confused by your argument, sir.
1: Well, no, I'm not arguing that historical DuPont or Camors in the 2015 transaction could decide between themselves that they wouldn't be liable to third parties. What you have in that transaction is historical DuPont retains its liability as it must vis-a-vis third parties and Camors assumed the liability in addition. So now you have two entities that are answerable for those liabilities. In the 2019 transaction, it's very different because there you don't, you know, Number one, the relevant assets are gone. The, the, the jurisdictional context are gone. And so now you have a different context. The Dow Chemical Companies come in. And Corteva and New DuPont, unlike historical DuPont, never were themselves liable for these, the, the contamination that's alleged in this case. They didn't even exist at the time of the contamination alleged in this case. So they haven't divested themselves of anything vis-a-vis third parties because they never had it.
4: Thank you. You've relied upon that quite a bit in terms of saying that those two entities were not in existence at the time. How do you respond to the imputation uh, argument under Bud Tyre and how that's been applied by the business court to find that as a successor uh, to the previous entities that that's enough to bring in uh, minimum contacts here?
1: Well, Your Honor... First, I would observe that the way the business court used Bud Tire is a first in the state. And our view is that that application of Bud Tire is too broad. It runs afoul of due process. And the reason for that is if you look at the cases that the business court relied on, the Simmers case, um, the Jeffrey case, those cases involve de facto mergers or situations where the successor entity is just carrying on the old business. The state has conceded here that that is not what we have in this case. That's in the record on 271. This is not a de facto merger case. Here we have a situation where Porteva and DuPont have assumed a subset of the assets. And our view is under Burger King, when you have a situation where a successor company is taking on less than the entire predecessor company, you need to look at the, the, the substance of the transaction and whether based on the subset of assets that they did take on, they would reasonably expect to be subject to jurisdiction in the state.
4: But where would we draw the line on that as a court in terms of you saying that didn't take all of those previous assets but took a sufficient amount uh, that would uh, somehow be less than that, which would allow there to be appropriate jurisdiction exercised?
1: Justice Morgan, this may be unsatisfying, but the Supreme Court has said basically that you can't draw a mechanical line. I think in, in my, the way I would approach it would be this. Anytime you have an assumption that is something short of a de facto merger, less than the entire predecessor company, then you need to do an individual analysis of the facts and circumstances of the transaction. That's what Burger King says. That's very similar to the approach that the Seventh Circuit applied in the Purdue Research case, where they, that case involved the assumption of a contract, which, you know, setting aside the formal labels is, very similar in substance to what we have here. They, you know, a party assumed a contract. That contract comes with certain rights and responsibilities. It also comes with certain benefits. And the Seventh Circuit said, we can't just follow the approach of cases like Simmers. We need to actually look at this contract and see, under these circumstances, would this party reasonably expect to be subject to jurisdiction? So, Is it I think- a
4: case-by-case case analysis then, or is it a matter of if it's not 100%... Uh- attainment by the successor company of the predecessor, then there's not going to be jurisdiction. It's a case-by-case analysis, Your Honor.
1: Now uh, just briefly, I want to turn before saving some time for rebuttal to the state's second theory, which is that by participating in an alleged fraudulent transfer, that somehow creates jurisdiction over Corteva and DuPont. Our clients certainly dispute that they participated in anything resembling a fraudulent transfer, but there's a simple problem with the state's argument here, which is that it runs headlong into the Walden v. Fiore case from the United States Supreme Court. And the problem is, is that the state's theory has no jurisdictional contact to North Carolina except for the plaintiff's state's presence here. And under Walden, the Supreme Court has made clear that that is not enough to support the exercise of personal jurisdiction. So unless Your Honors have further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellate. Mr.
5: Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and may I please the court, I'm Ryan Park from the North Carolina Department of Justice, representing the state of North (coughs) Carolina in this case, acting through Attorney General Josh Stein. There are a range of complex and novel legal issues in this case, But this appeal ultimately turns on a very simple question. When a corporation expressly and voluntarily assumes the liabilities of its predecessor, does it also assume the jurisdictional contacts that are associated with those liabilities? Now here, as Judge Robinson found below, New DuPont and Corteva expressly assumed all DuPont's PFAS liabilities. This is on record page 855, paragraph 46. So in that context, Judge Robinson correctly held in line with the overwhelming consensus of courts across the country. Uh, the answer to that jurisdictional imputation question is yes, they have where the liabilities have been voluntarily assumed by contract, so have the jurisdictional contacts. Now this conclusion flows directly from basic principles of personal jurisdiction law, uh, the touchstone of which is fundamental fairness. And it is fundamentally fair for a corporation that assumes the liabilities of its predecessor to be subject to jurisdiction where those liabilities arose, and that's here in North Carolina. Otherwise, as the Fourth Circuit noted in City of Richmond, any corporation that puts out a lousy product or poisons a state's environment could immunize itself effectively from liability, merely by making changes to its corporate form. And here, I think the critical fact that is missing from the opening presentation is that all of the defendants in this case, as of 2015, for the restructuring, we're the same company. This is not an arm's length transaction between you know, con- assigning a property right from one company to another uh, in distinct entities. This was a corporate restructuring where the same company broke into, into component parts and is now saying, the new companies are saying, uh, well, we didn't even exist uh, at the time uh, that these liabilities arose. But of course that's true because New DuPont and Corteva are paper companies. Uh, They have no employees, no direct business operations, no plants or equipment of any kind. They were created by Old DuPont to hold Old DuPont's assets. That is their sole purpose. And the idea uh, that New DuPont especially uh, is not the continuation uh, of Old DuPont, uh, frankly, is astonishing. If you go to New DuPont's website, as of this morning, they have a page on their website called Our History. And that page recites the 200-year history of old DuPont, including the time span that they operated the Fayetteville Works plant here in North Carolina. It doesn't say that we were a holding company that was created in 2017 or, you know, thereabouts uh, to hold assets of another company, and we have no contacts with, you know, any of our operations uh, prior to that. Uh, And if you just look at the name, I mean, uh, old DuPont's name was EI DuPont de Nemours & Company. Uh, New DuPont's name is DuPont de Nemours Incorporated, uh, their own assistant corporate secretary testified, this is on page four, seven, 407 uh, of the record, uh, that they're the same consolidated group of, the, <laughs> the DuPont consolidated group of companies, that's how she referred to them. And she insisted on calling uh, new DuPont legal entity 4400. I mean, uh, it is a paper company that was created to hold all DuPont's assets. So Judge Robinson, as we also uh, discussed, uh, found jurisdiction improper for a second basis, and that was the primary uh, you know topic of the initial conversation, which is the fraudulent transfers. So uh, you know we allege and uh, Judge Robinson uh, took these allegations uh, and incorporated in- them into his factual findings, uh, that new DuPont and Corteba uh, participated in a fraudulent uh, fraudulent transactions designed to help shield old DuPont's assets from Uh, creditors, including the state of North Carolina and anyone who'd been damaged uh, by the PFAS exposure. Uh, Now, I think the critical fact here is that uh, we allege, and George Robinson, uh, you know, took as true that approximately $20 billion in all DuPont's assets are now parked in Corteva and New DuPont. $20 billion. And as of 2015...
2: So to to answer the question that I asked Mr. Ackerman... uh, It would, the the trial court's findings indicate that the assets that Old DuPont had prior to this restructuring are now divided among a number of companies, including the two who are challenging jurisdiction here. Is that a correct reading of the record as a factual matter? That's correct, Your Honor. Okay.
5: Yeah. Uh, And one clarification on the jurisdictional discovery point, Uh, you know, you can look at the entire saga of jurisdictional discovery from page 271 to page 289 of the record. Uh, there was no jurisdictional discovery on the assets that Chemours uh, holds or that old DuPont holds. Um, the jurisdictional discovery was laser focused on one question which is the contractual assumption because there was these confidential schedules uh, where we alleged on information and belief New DuPont and Corteva had contractually assumed the PFAS liabilities. Uh, but until Judge Robinson ordered jurisdictional discovery on that question, we had no way of knowing definitively whether that was true. Uh, and Judge Robinson denied jurisdictional discovery on other elements of our claims related to the fraudulent transfers. Uh, and so this is on page 288 and 289 of the record. You can see the order for itself. Uh, it, it, there's, you know, he ordered uh, appellants to provide the confidential schedules and for their corporate secretaries to sit for short depositions related to uh, the assumption of liabilities. So even putting aside the contractual assumption, uh, you know, we believe that jurisdiction is proper as Dr- Judge Robinson held uh, because of these fraudulent transfers. Uh, you know, one other critical fact is that at the time that they agreed to assume those liabilities, it is really indisputable that they knew of the PFAS liabilities uh, and the massive legal exposure that Old DuPont held here in North Carolina. So uh, there are these SEC filings in their record uh, page 388, 389, um, 390, uh, 4, 395, where um, you know they have an entire section of their SEC disclosures. This is Corteva's and new DuPont's SEC disclosures, not old DuPont's, uh, in 2018 and 2019, right before uh, they assumed the PFAS liabilities. These disclosures recite all of the lawsuits that were currently pending in North Carolina, a, a, a criminal, uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, that's not correct, uh, an investigation by the the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of North Carolina, Uh, government lawsuits by local governments, uh, class action lawsuits related to uh, contaminated drinking water, Uh, and there's a a section heading in the liability section entitled Fayetteville Works Facility, North Carolina, where they run through all these liabilities. So of course they knew that these liabilities existed in North Carolina when they signed a contract explicitly assuming those liabilities for themselves. Now, there are a a couple of other other, factual elements that I think it would be helpful uh, to discuss. Let me
6: ask you a real quick question. Um, As I understand the business court order, he found that there was jurisdiction for two reasons. One, um, because of the assumption of the liabilities specifically and referring to the documents, and also because of the fraudulent transfer. Is it the state's position that you need both of those grounds to go forward with jurisdiction in this case?
5: Uh, no, Your Honor. Uh, no, they're not truly uh, alternative grounds, um, but the contractual imputation, um, uh, the, the question i issue with the contractual imputation is, you know, whatever old DuPont's PFAS-related liabilities were at the time, those have been contractually assumed uh, by New DuPont and Corteva. Um, and, you know, obviously, these are the subject of, of confidential, um, you know, materials, uh, but uh, I think we would probably... If that were the only basis for imputing jurisdiction, we'd probably uh, have additional proceedings to determine the scope of what those liabilities were. Um, but the fraudulent uh, transfer uh, imputation and also the, the Calder analysis, uh, that would relate to um, you know, the, the, full, uh, the full range of claims.
6: Okay, as, as I understand Mr. Ackerman's argument, um, he contends that the application of the Bud-Tyre case is too broad, and what, what do you say about that? Or, or any other case that may bear on that issue of imputing the jurisdiction as well as the, the liabilities?
5: Yeah, so I think I would direct the court to the City of Richmond case, which was the Fourth Circuit case, as well as the Jefferies case from the Supreme Court of Michigan. Uh, and, and what is uh, important in those cases is that there was not a, a, a full complete uh, de facto merger uh, or a continuation in those cases. Uh, in City of Richmond, for example, there was a company that sold its pipe manufacturing operations to another company in, a, in an arm's length transaction. Uh, and the Fourth Circuit held that successorship jurisdiction was proper there related to the liabilities that had been contractually assumed. Uh, the, the same is true in Jeffries, in Simmers, some of these other cases, where uh, the prior company continued. Uh, it, it wasn't you know, a, a, a total dissolution and then a reformation as a new company. It was uh, a sale of a business line to, a, to another company. And, and the court held, those, all those courts held uh, that that was sufficient. Uh, to impute contacts in that situation. Um, now, hey, I-
3: Mr. Parks, excuse me, to follow up on Justice Hudson's question, I'm struggling with the assumption of liability theory versus the fraudulent transfer theory, and how they interact with, I believe, it's Fiore and Burger King. Could you expand on that for me? Help me to grapple with that. And and I believe I understood you to say that these two theories did not have to be together to support
5: jurisdiction. Uh, Yes, of course, Your Honor. So I agree uh, with with Mr. Ackerman that that Burger King provides the relevant governing framework. Uh, And, uh, you know, I would rely on the same passage uh, that he relied on, which says essentially that the entire course of dealing in the transaction uh, uh, has to be considered by the court. It's a fact-sensitive inquiry, and here where you have uh, it's essentially a, a breakup uh, of a single company uh, into component parts. Well, that suggests uh, that those those the, the resulting companies are successors, and so successor jurisdiction uh, is proper in, in these uh, circumstances when there's a contractor when there's fraud. Uh, you know, in, in terms of determining uh, the kind of the boundary lines between them, it, it is a little confusing because. Uh, we support um, our, uh, in, there's an imputation argument and there's also a direct um, jurisdiction argument. So the Calder analysis is all related to direct jurisdiction uh, and so uh, you know, there are a range of courts including the New Hampshire Supreme Court recently that have held that a fraudulent conveyance uh, tort, is an, it's an intentional tort and you know, just like defamation at issue in, in Calder and so if you're directing a fraudulent transfer tort at a forum uh, then that is gives rise to personal jurisdiction uh, that's individual to the company, both the company that uh, receives the assets in a fraudulent transfer or that um, that supplies them, and so that's where the the Fiore issue arises. Uh, but there's an is this entirely separate imputation argument, uh, and this is you know one of the exceptions to to Bud Tire, um, where it's essentially the same thing except for imputation. So uh, under that theory, you can impute contacts when there's a uh, fraud at issue uh, in the successorship process, uh, and so that's what we allege here um, that because these, um, uh, because these transactions were designed to shield uh, around half of old DuPont's assets from its PFAS liabilities, um, that imputation is proper to, um, based on old DuPont's contacts uh, onto New DuPont and Cortepa. Thank you. So. Uh, I'd like to address a question that, that you wrote, um, raised, Justice Beringer, in the uh, opening presentation on, on the Chem Wars transaction. Uh, so uh, I think there's a couple things uh, to note there. Uh, one is that uh, everyone agrees that a tortfeasor cannot uh, contract away its tort liability. So after the contractual, uh, the 2015 spinoff to Chem Wars, Old DuPont retained the full extent of its original uh, PFAS liabilities. Uh, And so, you know, when they also uh, um, transferred those same liabilities to Newt DuPont and Corteva, those liabilities had remained unchanged. Uh, Old DuPont held them jointly and severally with Chem at that time. Uh, And Judge Robinson at the hearing below kind of analogized this to a loan guarantee. So you can have a secondary guarantor to a a loan, uh, and as long as the terms of that loan contract say so, um, you know, the full extent of the loan can be transferred to a secondary guarantor. And if the first guarantor cannot satisfy the liabilities, which we think is reasonably possible here, given that Chemours is undercapitalized, then the secondary guarantor can, can be liable for that loan. Um, so, you know, I think it's helpful to note that uh, there is nothing that New DuPont and Corteva have ever been able to cite to say um, that, this, that their theory here uh, makes sense, that you can, um, you know, contractually uh, convey liabilities to a third party and then later on when you contractually contractually convey those same liabilities to another third party that somehow that second third party wouldn't reasonably anticipate uh, that those liabilities would really be there. Um, The logic really doesn't hold up in our view. So, uh, I guess I, I would uh, like to discuss briefly the Calder theory, uh, your Honor, as if, uh, if I may. So uh, as I mentioned, you know fraudulent transfer is an intentional tort, uh, and there are many, many cases where uh, courts across the country have said that if you direct a fraudulent transfer, uh, that creates primary jurisdiction uh, against the, the parties who participated in that fraudulent uh, transfer. Uh, and uh, you know, I think uh, the the principal objection. Uh, that New DuPont and Corteva have raised on on that theory uh, is that there's not a a judgment that currently exists uh, in North Carolina uh, where, you know, this litigation is intended to create that judgment. Uh, And uh, I think that that cannot possibly be the line where a fraudulent transfer uh, uh, no longer supplies jurisdiction. Um, I mean, it has to be a fact sensitive inquiry. I mean, if it were a bright line rule that if there's no judgment, no jurisdiction, then, you know, they could execute a a transaction, uh, you know, while the jury's deliberating, uh, or, um, you know, I mean, that's an extreme example, but while, and so the, uh, it has to be.
2: So if it's, I was just going to say, you may be about ready to answer my question, if a judgment is not required, then what's sufficient?
5: So I think it is a a fact-sensitive inquiry. I'd go back to Burger King.
2: We we always say that, but then that begs the question of what is the fact-sensitive inquiry that we're supposed to conduct.
5: Yeah, and I think here it's it's an easy case. Uh, And I would direct the court back to the SEC disclosures. I mean, they really are um, indisputable proof that New DuPont and Corteva knew of these PFAS obligations when they uh, engaged in these transactions. Uh, I mean, they reported under you know, sworn declarations to the Securities and Exchange Commission that there had, all these lawsuits had been filed, uh, government investigations from the federal government, from local governments, uh, class actions, uh, and so uh, <coughs> they should have reasonably anticipated that by taking assets and making them unavailable to satisfy those, uh, those judgments in those lawsuits, that they were subjecting themselves to, to jurisdiction. Um,
0: isn't the test for a fraudulent transfer just simply uh, whether there are enough assets available to retain whatever the potential liability could be? I mean, once, once uh, someone uh, transfers more assets, so, and again, you know, you've got to have a determination of what the potential liability could be, but uh, once it's determined that that made the transfer insolvent, then that would meet the definition.
5: I think that's right, Your Honor, I think that, you know, that along with the intent uh, to uh, uh, evade those liabilities uh, would be the required elements under North Carolina law and, you know, roughly speaking. um, And I think here we're at the pleading stage. Uh, There, again, has been no jurisdictional discovery. So so in
2: essence, are you saying that if you can allege, in this case since we're working off allocations rather than an evidentiary showing, if you can allege a uh, colorable claim for a fraudulent conveyance, that's enough.
5: Yes, I, th- I think that's right at this stage in the proceeding. Uh, and that's, again, we're just talking that's, about- That's why I limited my question the way I did. Uh, yes, Your Honor. I mean, I think if there had been jurisdictional discovery on these points, we would be uh, in different posture. But again, that jurisdictional discovery was limited to the contract. Uh, and so, you know, the standards are a little bit different depending on which part of the case we're talking about. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, this is all a matter of public record, um, that billions and billions of dollars of assets were sent uh, to these two companies. Uh, and you know, I think it helps just to put this, all these transactions in a little bit of context. I mean, these PFAS liabilities were potentially enterprise-threatening for Old DuPont. Uh, and uh, this is, by some measures, uh, one of the biggest environmental disasters in our state's history. We have uh, decades of toxic chemicals being dischar- discharged into the Cape Fear River, supplies the drinking water of 1.5 million North Carolinians. Uh, this was a very, very, very big deal. Uh, and uh, I think that an argument has been made, at least in, on the papers, that well this is a problem that you know, applied nationwide. Uh, and that's actually just not true when, when you dig into the details. Um, look at the disclosures again, the SEC disclosures. Um, while DuPont uh, does face lawsuits related to its PFAS production and manufacture and sale uh, across the country, There are really only a couple of places where they had a factory that was uh, emitting and discharging enormous amounts of PFAS into uh, a state's environment uh, here in West Virginia uh, on the Ohio border and in New Jersey. Um, And that's why there's an entire heading in their disclosures about the West Virginia litigation, an entire heading related to the various lawsuits uh, here in North Carolina. and so, when they engaged in all these transactions, um, their liabilities uh, potentially did go beyond what they left in ChemOrs and Old DuPont. Uh, uh, you know, I think this is uh, well, well. If I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but but J- Judge Robinson, you know, he accepted these allegations as true. That that Old DuPont was undercapitalized. ChemOr's was undercapitalized. ChemORs, in fact, sued Old DuPont, saying that you know, under the terms of our agreement. Uh, we were insolvent, and, and so they engaged in a settlement uh, discussion to uh, try to, to, to remedy what they said um, was uh, an abusive transaction. Uh, Chemours was required to debt finance a four billion dollar dividend to All Dupont. Now, even for companies of this size, a four billion dollar loan and dividend is an enormous transaction that Chemours was saddled with, alongside um, being required to assume all of. Uh, new DuPont's and Corteva's liabilities. Uh, and so, uh, you know, at the time I think everyone understood uh, that uh, these were potentially enterprise-threatening um, uh, liabilities and they engaged in a, corporate tran- a series of corporate transactions trying to segregate some of their assets uh, from those liabilities. I, I think one other uh, point, that I- a small point, but I think an important one, um, if you look at the Jeffrey case and the Simmers case, and the uh, Pennsylvania Appellate Court and the Michigan Supreme Court, um, you know, the circumstances were, were, were fairly similar, especially Jeffrey. Um, there you had, you know, this complex web of corporate transactions, um, but what was critical was the contractual assumption of liabilities. Um, in that situation, you know, the original company continued on, continued operating its other business lines, um, and in fact, actually divest, divested those business li- uh, the um, the business lines associated with the liabilities, um, you know, between the time of the transaction and the litigation. So uh, the the successors were no longer operating um, the asbestos uh, operations in, in that case. Um, but because of the contractual assumption, the court still found there to be successorship jurisdiction in that case. Uh, and you know that's why I I tried to start uh, the presentation where I did because I think that be, you know because of the tra- contractual assumption because of the jurisdictional discovery that Judge Robinson allowed, it allowed us to learn uh, that that assumption included old DuPont's PFAS liabilities. And you know, when there is a contractual assumption, it, it's a really, uh, it's a very simple analysis. Um, so in, in Ostrom, for example, so this is one of the cases that they, they cite um, uh, you know, saying that you know, de facto merger should be the touchstone. Uh, in that case, it was uh, you know, an assignment of a interest in a single life insurance policy. So clearly not a de facto merger, but as far from a de facto merger as you could have. But it also came with a contractual assumption of liabilities related uh, to that interest. And that court, the the court said, you know, not successors um, and therefore no per se imputation, uh, but because of this contractual assumption, we will impute liabilities within the scope of the interest that was transferred. Um, So, you know, even if we're in this world of trying to examine the context, examine uh, the specific considerations here, we think the contract here is decisive.
2: And,
6: and I just want to be clear, if we were to conclude that the trial court was right to apply Bud Tyre and that the, the, the first and third exceptions um, are satisfied here, we don't need to address the Calder basis for jurisdiction, right?
5: So, so I don't uh, think you, you strictly need uh, to reach that issue. We would ask the court uh, to reach it. Uh, and. Uh, I'd like to explain you know, why we think it's important. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, for the fraudulent transfer claims, there's, there's four fraudulent transfer claims. Uh, the only way to get direct um, uh, jurisdiction over New DuPont and Corteva without engaging in imputation uh, is through uh, that process uh, of, 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 of going through the Calder analysis. Uh, and so we think it would be appropriate for the court. To reach that, um, at, at you know, this point, uh, you know, Judge Robinson hasn't even adjudicated the pleadings challenge, uh, other than uh, personal jurisdiction, uh, and uh, we we don't know where this litigation might go. So we think it, it might end up be being appropriate uh, for the court to have opinion on that issue, and and therefore um, you know prevent or not prevent, but you know uh, uh, it would be helpful if 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 those issues arise. Uh, in a future date for them to already uh, already be decided. Um, and you know, I, I guess I would say, and perhaps you know, in closing, that that really is where we are. Uh, we are very early in, in this case. There is a pleadings challenge that has been per, uh, fully briefed out. There was argument. Judge Robinson stayed consideration uh, of that challenge. There's a number of legal defenses that they have raised. Uh, we haven't had any meaningful discovery yet in this case. All we're asking for is for uh, us to be able to try to prove our claims on the merits uh, before Judge Robinson uh, in the business court. You know, and here, where we have a contractual assumption of liabilities uh, and well pled allegations uh, that uh, assets, again, $20 billion of assets, about half of old DuPont's assets, have been put in paper companies designed to shield them from uh, the reach of the state's jurisdiction, uh, that it, jurisdiction can be imputed Calder analysis allows for direct uh, imputation, sorry, direct application uh, of jurisdiction uh, over these paper companies and would allow us to move forward on the merits. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Thank you. Rebuttal.
1: Thank you, Your Honors. I'd, I'd like to start with this question about imputation versus fraudulent transfer and Calder, just to try to clear clear the record up there. So the state has two theories here. On the fraudulent transfer, their theory is under the Calder effects test, participation in this alleged fraudulent transfer alone creates jurisdiction over Corteva and New DuPont. The business court, to be clear, did not reach that Calder theory, did not decide that. That's on page 852 of the record, note nine. The problem with that theory is that it runs headlong into Walden. The only connection that the state can point to between Corteva and New DuPont, vis-a-vis that fraudulent transaction or alleged fraudulent transaction, is the fact that the plaintiff, the state, is located in the forum. And Walden says, that's not enough. Fifth Circuit, in the Mullins case, on page 400, rightfully said, they're skeptical of the suggestion that a non-resident defendant's receipts, receipt of assets transferred with an intent to hinder, delay, or defraud a creditor, ipso facto establishes personal jurisdiction in the state where the complaining <coughs> creditor resides, on page four. Why? Because the Supreme Court has instructed there needs to be an action on the part of the defendant. It can't be the plaintiff's conduct that creates the jurisdictional contacts. And here there is nothing else that was targeting the state in that alleged fraudulent transaction. So that's the problem with the Calder theory.
2: Well, hypothetically, assuming we were to agree with you on the imputation argument, do you suggest that we reach the uh, direct jurisdiction argument or remand that?
1: It's a purely legal issue, Your Honor. The state has tried to establish that there's some connection or that this alleged fraudulent transfer was in some way targeted North Carolina. They haven't done that. On on this record, we think it's very clear that we prevail under Walden, and so you could go ahead and reach that.
2: So so both of you, for different reasons, think we should reach that issue? Uh,
1: Sounds like that's the case. That's Uh,
2: that's my my read on the room, but it always helps to have confirmation.
1: You know, one other point, just briefly, on the Calder analysis. I think taking a look at the definition of creditor in the fraudulent transfer statute is important here because I think that gets to this distinction about why judgments are important. Essentially, anybody that has an unmatured claim against somebody that they're alleging to be, have participated in a fraudulent transfer could be a creditor within the meaning of the statute. Now, why does that matter for us? It matters because you could be a fraudulent transfer creditor and never do anything to give notice to the defendants. That's different than a judgment. If there's a judgment, the defendants are obviously aware that this thing is sitting there and they have some obligation.
2: Is it, is it your understanding that li- I mean, I understand we're not at the liability stage, so, you know, I think we don't need to discuss that part of it, but at least in North Carolina, is it your understanding that a that liability for a fraudulent conveyance requires uh, a judgment as a prerequisite? <laughs>
1: You know, I I don't have the answer to that right now. If you look at the fraudulent transfer statute, Your Honor, there are a number of requirements that the state would never be able to establish here, including the validity of consideration in this contract, things like that. I do know, to your question, uh, courts sometimes litigate the fraudulent transfer claims in the same action as the underlying liability claim. I think in many of those circumstances, and and perhaps here, it would be appropriate to bifurcate that. Turning from Calder then to the state's imputation theory. Um, The the issue here really is in situations that are not a merger or a mere continuation, you have to look at what the assets or liabilities were acquired were and whether the party acquiring them would reasonably anticipate being subject to jurisdiction in the forum. Now, uh, you know, Solicitor General Park talks about some of these other cases And and with respect, they're all different situations. Here, uh, again, the the state has conceded on page 271 that this is not a mere continuation case. This is not a de facto merger case. The Richmond case that, um, well, first, on that point about not a mere continuation or not de facto merger. Simmers on page 482 to 83 makes clear that that is a merger case. The Jeffrey case, page 190, footnote five, that's a merger case. The other case that uh, Solicitor General Park talked about, the Richmond case, doesn't even have a due process analysis. There's no constitutional analysis at all in that case. And uh, you can look at the, the State of Idaho versus Hanna case for a discussion about that and how uh, Richmond is deficient on that point on page 40, or 1481 of Hanna.
6: Let me ask you a real quick question. What do you make of um, the Solicitor General's argument about the SEC filings? What what role, if any, do you uh, contend that they play in this litigation? Support? Yes, Justice
1: Hudson. So I think if you take a look at those SEC filings, you know there there are a couple points here that are I think the picture is misleadingly incomplete. So first of all, the whole filings are not in the record. They've, they've taken a couple pages from voluminous filings, and as you can imagine, companies of the scale of DuPont have a lot of litigation and regulatory matters going on at all times. A couple things about these that uh, Solicitor General Park didn't mention. In the 2019 10K, which is the year of the transaction, this is page 399 of the record, uh, it says that the PFOA liabilities are quote, not expected to be material. Um, you know There are other environmental liabilities discussed even in that excerpt on page 401. And there's a half a dozen cases in connection, or half a dozen states rather, listed in that discussion in addition to North Carolina. And so to take a step back why that matters is because it goes to this expectations question. What did you, Corteva or New DuPont expect when engaging in this transaction? And to cherry pick you know, one paragraph out of these lengthy financial statements, I think distorts that that expectations picture. And um, you know, one other important point on that is the business court didn't make any finding about North Carolina. That's, that's a key part of this that's missing. There are findings in there about you know, the, the contracts generally, but there's nothing about the forum. There's nothing about why Corteva and New DuPont would expect to be subject to jurisdiction here. And, you know, just briefly to comment on a couple other points the Solicitor General made. One, you know, he, he's referred to our clients a couple times as paper companies and, you know, I don't know what that's meant to mean, but it, it actually supports our position here. They don't have operations. Uh, you know, they don't have contacts to the state. You know, the other, the other point is, he referenced the website of New Pupont a couple of times. That website's not in the record, number one. Uh, number two, I don't know whether the statements on that website correspond to the legal entity that we're talking about here. You know, he made a comment about one of our clients referring precisely to a legal entity because she was trying to be careful and accurate. And, you know, the statements on the website, they have nothing to, to attribute those to uh, DuPont and Moore or New DuPont. I wanna end on, on one point here that goes to the, the uh, assumption question and that theory. When you look at these cases, Simmers and Jeffrey, there, there's a common thread running through all of them. And it's this notion that we're trying to protect tort plaintiffs from you know a company that puts out a dangerous product in the market shuts down the company opens up under another name the next day you know transfers some of the assets maybe in a different jurisdiction to try to avoid liability that is emphatically not the situation we have here the original company that uh you know plaintiff claims was responsible for this conduct is in the case the company that assumed those liabilities is in the case they are both well capitalized ongoing businesses You know, these, uh, Corteva and New DuPont, in that sense, you know, some cases would dispute the notion that there even are successors where historical DuPont continues to exist today.
0: Thank Thank you, Councilors. Thank you, everyone.